rebellion, at least a month. But a few daring men, specialists, led by you, could do it in one bold, swift stroke. What we really need is an equalizer. A dynamiter. A man with a delicate touch to blow out a candle without putting a dent in the candle holder. Philippine campaign, Cuba with Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Joining Pancho Villa as weapons expert and tactician. Ex-cavalryman, cattle boss, wrangler, bullwhacker, packmaster. Specialist with rifle, rope, and longbow. Most defendable scout and tracker in the territory. Raza. Captain Jesus Raza. Jesus. What a name for the bloodiest cutthroat in Mexico. That's a lot of wool there. Beautiful. Classy. Guts. Go to hell. Yes, ma'am. I'm on my way. How long since you had a woman? Would it make any difference? You want me? My price is high. I might say yes now. And later, no. For money is foolish. To die for a woman is more foolish. Any woman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program. I'm Paul Spataro, and you may not know this, but I'm welcoming for the third time to Is It Yours, Mr. Richard Shannon. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on again. <laughs> You're welcome. It's, uh, and, you know, you, you might be scratching your head saying, what do you mean third time? Well, this is the third time that Richard and I are uh, trying to... To record this particular episode because of technical difficulties that we've encountered in the past, so I apologize uh, if I, I don't know if by doing it three times we we perfect it or if we just kind of peter out and just go right to the is it your Joe's review lines. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we'll we'll try and do our best for you. And we're here today to review the 1966 western, The Professionals which stars Burt Lancaster, Lee Marvin, Claudia Cardinal, Robert Ryan, Woody Strode, Jack Palance, Ralph Bellamy, and Joe DeSantis. Uh, it's it's a, uh, I guess a, a lesser known movie would probably be a fair way to, to say it. It's, it's kind of a, I, I see it as the little brother to the Magnificent Seven. 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, to me, the reason I heard about it was due to Lee Marvin, which I'm a big fan of his films. And other than that one, I thought it was a movie that was made much earlier than it was. And to find out this was his picture before he did The Dirty Dozen was a real surprise because I thought this was made like right after The Magnificent Seven in the early 60s. Right. Well, it's not, it's not too far removed. So 66, and I think The Magnificent Seven, if my memory is correct, is 60. Yeah, so, yeah. I, so, I thought this was like a 60, 60 film. And uh, we, we might as well get right into the first time I ever saw this was on AMC back in the late 1980s when AMC was more akin to what TMC is now. Right, when it was just nothing but movies and no original programming. And no and no commercial interruptions during the movies. Right. I I saw this probably in the 90s, and that's what I say. I When I really got into researching and getting all of Lee Marvin's movies on DVD... I heard of this one, and I ordered it online back in the early days of the Internet, probably like 97, 98, and got it in and really liked it. I liked the ensemble cast, and it was it was a nice movie. I, I really enjoyed it. All right, I should give the plot before we go too far into it. During the Mexican Revolution, rancher J.W. Grant, who is portrayed by Ralph Bellamy, hires four men who are all experts in their respective fields to rescue his kidnapped wife, Maria, who's Claudia Cardinal, uh, from Jesus Raza, Jack Palance, a former revolutionary leader turned bandit. Henry Rico Farden, which is Lee Marvin, is a weapons specialist. Bill Dalworth, Burt Lancaster, is an explosives expert. The horse wrangler is Hans Erengard, and that's Robert Ryan, and Jake Sharp, Woody Strode, is a traditional Apache scout skilled with a bow and arrow. Farden and Dalworth, having both fought under the command of Pancho Villa, have high regard for Raza as a soldier, but as cynical professionals they have no qualms about killing him now. After crossing the Mexican border, the team tracks the bandits to their hideout. They witness soldiers on a government train being massacred by Raza's small army. The professionals follow the captured train to the end of the line and retake it from the bandits. Some move on the bandit camp and observe Raza and his followers, including a female soldier, Chiquita, at nightfall. Farden infiltrates Raza's private headquarters, but he is stopped from killing him by Maria, the kidnapped wife. Dalworth con concludes, we've been had. Farden escapes with Grant's wife. Back at the train, they find that it's been retaken by the bandits. After a shootout, they retreat into the mountains, pursued by Raza and his men. Professionals evade capture by using explosives to bring down the walls of a gully, thus blocking the bandits' path and delaying their pursuit. It is then revealed that they had not rescued Grant's kidnapped wife, but Raza's willing mistress. Grant bought Maria for an arranged marriage, only to have her escape and return to her true love in Mexico. As Raza and his bandits pursue the retreating professionals, Dalworth fights a rearguard action to allow the other professionals to escape with Maria. In the battle, Raza is wounded. As he and Chiquita attempt to escape, she is shot by Dalworth. Weakened, Raza is captured by Dalworth. The professionals with Maria and Raza reach the U.S. border to be met by Grant and his own men. Grant tells Farden that their contract has been satisfactorily concluded even before Maria is safely handed over to him. As Maria tends the wounded Gra Raza, Grant says to one of his men, Kill him. Before the men can fire, the gun is shot out of his hand by Dalworth. 
The professionals step in to protect Maria and Raza. They collect the wounded Raza, put him on a carriage, and, with Maria at the reins, send both back to Mexico. Grant calls Farden a bastard, to which Farden retorts, Yes, sir, in my case, an accident of birth. But you, sir, are a self-made man. The professionals follow the departing carriage to Mexico. And the credits roll. So, again, I, I watched this, I remember at the time, it was uh, on AMC, and it was at a time when cable TV had kind of just come to Brooklyn. Uh, we, we were a little delayed as compared to other parts of the New York area and certainly other parts of the country on cable. Uh, and I think there was, you know, like rights fights over the areas and things like that. And I remember I had gotten it, and one of my friends didn't, and he had said, "Oh, this mo- this movie coming on AMC. Could you, you know, could you record it for me? You know, back then on a VHS tape." Uh, so I did, and then before I gave it to him, I watched it, and that's that's how I ended up seeing this. And over the years since then, so we're talking around 30 years ago, I've probably seen this a total of maybe three times, one of which was for the sake of recording this with you. Right. Uh, I, I enjoy this movie. I think this is a good, solid movie. But ultimately, I come back on the review that I, you know, the, the two-second review I gave earlier, where I feel it's almost like the little brother to the Magnificent Seven. It's it's a good, solid movie. And if you're in that mode of watching movies of that nature, you could just put this right into the queue, and it fits in, and it's fine. Right. But I right. but I don't know if it entices you to watch it if you're not really just in that particular mood. It's not. Not like one of these movies that you just think, oh, I have to watch this, you know, periodically or anything like that. But I'm curious, you know, how did, how you uh, how it falls for you because it may, you know, it may be, have a, a much much uh, different take in your heart. Well, I probably have watched it probably a good half a dozen times, maybe a couple more, getting closer to a dozen just for this podcast. But <laughs> for me. And uh, all elite, I watch it for Lee Marvin mostly because every now and again I'll get in the mood to put in a few of his movies. And this ha- this is one of them just because of the type of movie it is, you know, action adventure movie, you know. And it's it's a it's a good watch. It'll it definitely keeps my attention. I I like the character interaction between everybody. And it's it's like you say it, it's it's kind of a, a magnificent seven type of light movie because of the the theme and all that sort of stuff. But I, I give it a, a good regard. It's 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 entertaining. All right, let's let's talk about the cast a little bit. And and Lee Marvin, who's, who drew you to the movie, so we'll t- go with him first. And he's kind of the titular star of the movie. Not titular, because it's in the profession. You know, I guess, well, he would be the first professional. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of using that term improperly, but that's okay. Um, but he, he is kind of set forth as the star of the movie. I think his name comes up first in the credits. Uh, yeah, and, he's, uh, and he's the leader of the group. So you kind of see him as, the, as the, uh, the main guy. And I would say this is just kind of your typical Lee Marvin performance. Uh, there's nothing about it that really jumps out at me as being, you know, oh, this is the one that stands out. But there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's a very, just a very solid workman acting performance by him. He's a, he's a, a fairly likable character. I don't think they give him too many moments to give you like real character depth. That moment they quote in the uh, in the synopsis about, you know, in my case, an accident of birth. Uh, that's almost the, the, the most emotional he gets in the whole movie. That's Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin's not an emotional actor. 
you're right. I mean, other than, you know, the train scene when they're watching Raza's men, you know, execute all the soldiers, government soldiers that survived, and you see Robert Ryan get kind of, you know, taken aback, and he's, you know, he says something negative about it. Lee Marvin looks at him and says, shut up with this being, you know, mean look at his face. And he just exits the scene. And then Burt Lancaster fills in the little background on why Lee Marvin, you know, had happened to him later where his wife was murdered by uh, a bunch of these guys. And that he, you know, probably is thinking to himself in that scene, it's good that these guys are being killed. That's the only other background you get on his character. Mm-hmm. and but it doesn't seem to, to me, take too much away from the movie, you know, that you just drop these three guys in and you just get your little synopsis on the train that one guy's a bounty hunter, one guy's, expl- you know, a horseman, Lee Marvin's the weapons guy, and then he suggests Burt Lancaster. That's that's it. That's all you know about these guys and that at one point they were involved with Pancho Villa. But it doesn't, it still doesn't leave you with any questions. From what you get in the movie, tells you a lot about these guys and that they're professionals. They do their job, even though they kind of don't like what they're doing when they find out that Maria and Raza are actually a couple and she wasn't kidnapped. You know, Lee Marvin says, I still have a contract. Yeah. And I think, Lee, if you know, if you were a movie watcher, movie movie viewer or a fan of movies of that era in, in the 50s and 60s, say, uh, Lee Marvin kind of just fits the mold of the Lee Marvin character. Uh, he's he's the same guy who's you know the in charge of the uh, group in the Dirty Dozen in World War Two. You know he, he's pretty much Lee Marvin. So, and my dog is barking like an idiot. Uh, so so if if you're watching it, you kind of know who you're dealing with at that time. The, you know the star system I think was a little different back then, and I think. You know, you you often had characters or actors playing similar characters that you just kind of felt comfortable with them right away, and I kind of think that's what you're getting with Lee Marvin here. I think he's playing the typical Lee Marvin character, so you don't need a lot of setup for him. I would agree. I mean, yeah, he probably plays the set guy through most of the movies that I've seen him in. I can only think of maybe one movie off the top of my head where he kind of played an out-of-character part, but... Is that Cat Bellew? No, actually, I thought it was this movie called Ship of Fools, that he's in an ensemble cast, and he's playing this baseball player that's on a cruise from somewhere in the United States to Berlin, Germany, back in the early 1930s. And outside of that, that's that, and maybe this movie with Paul Newman that he did in the early 70s, which I rented out of just seeing, wow, him and Paul Newman, but it wasn't a very good movie, so I was a little disappointed in that, but that's besides the point. But Ship of Fools was one of the few movies where he's not playing your hard and tough guy, mm-hmm. you know? So other than that, it's this is, yeah, this is probably just like the Dirty Dozen where he's playing the major who's leading the squad, or even like in uh, Prime uh, Prime Cut where he's like this mob enforcer going after Gene Hackman, you know, same tough guy. Right, exactly. Now, second build in the movie, but I think actually the star of the movie is Burt Lancaster as uh, Bill Dalworth. He's yes. he's the one who gives us a little bit more character moments. He's the one who has the heroic moment at the end where he's allowed to, uh, you know, 
be willing to sacrifice himself to save the rest of them, even though ultimately he doesn't. And as you watch the movie, at least for the first time, uh, you do think that he could be killed in that scene, you know, that the sacrifice does oh, yeah. seem like it may come to pass. And, uh, you know, I apologize to anybody who hears this and decides they want to watch this for the spoilers <laughs> that I just gave you. Uh, but anyway, uh, he, he also is playing kind of, in my opinion, typical Burt Lancaster. But Burt Lancaster is one of the actors of that era that I find to be particularly charismatic. Uh, he, he, he had a very, uh, appealing smile, which almost made him, you know, made, made you kind of feel like you wanted to be his friend. Uh, and I, in particular, I think he had a very, uh, you know, melodic almost voice that really is just almost soothing when he speaks. And I just, I just find him to be a very, very compelling actor in everything I've ever seen him in. And this is no exception. I think he, he really steals this movie. Oh, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. His character is, is probably the, the one who, does the closest to bringing a little bit of lightheartedness to the movie with his opinions on stuff. And, uh, you know, like you say, when he goes and uh, holds off Raza and his men so everybody else can make it back to the the border, I definitely, the first time I thought it, thought, well, it looks like, you know, he's going to end up, you know, being the kind of the hero who ends up dying to save the day. But, you know, successfully all four of the guys made it back, which that really surprised me. I thought this was going to be one of those movies where, you weren't going to see everybody make it in the end. But he, he put in a great performance. I thought, like you say, I agree with it. He did steal the movie. And right from the start, you know, again, you know, you, you say you don't expect everybody to make it. And I kind of thought the same thing. I think I think maybe they all made it because they were thinking we might be able to get a sequel out of this. Uh, but the one who I think, you know, was clearly uh, they gave you some signs that he might be the one to go is Robert Ryan. Uh, and he's a little bit against character because I often see Robert Ryan as the not nice guy. In this, you know, he's he's a horse trainer, and he you know he's clearly got you know uh, he he's way ahead of his time with animal rights. Uh, you know, he he would fit in today's era of uh, people who who are concerned about the animals being mistreated and all. Um, right. But he's he's very right from the start. He's his character is played as very weary and almost you know, like dragging along a little bit. So you, you could see at some point where he might just say the hell with it. And he puts his, you know, puts himself in a position where he ends up going. Yeah. I thought there, I watched the, uh, the movie the other day just to get caught back up on it before this. And I noticed a couple of times you look at scenes where his, he's got this look on his face. Like he doesn't know if he can, you know, commit to how, to everything the way these other guys are and that he might not be up to it. But yet, you know, when, he kind of tips everybody off when the bandits do retake the train and kind of prevents them from being ambushed. So he does one heroic thing, which he gets shot, but, you know, spoilers here, he ends up, you know, not dying or anything. But you're right, he's really low-key, and I almost thought he was kind of an afterthought when you look at the the movie. You're not thinking of him right away. You think of more of, you know, Burt Lancaster, Lee Marvin, and Woody Strode before you think of Robert Ryan. Yeah, and Woody Strode, just keeping to moving moving along through the cast, he's he's a guy who's kind of compelling in his own way. He's he's got very little in the way of dialogue in the movie, uh, but he he's he's you know he's the guy who you just kind of 
he is almost a stereotypical character. He's the guy who just has the ability to do all these things that normal people can't do, the tracking and all of that stuff. Uh, right. And and he's uh, he's another one who's just kind of a, a compelling actor. Like, you, you see him and you just automatically like him. And he's he's a guy who's, you know, he's got an interesting hi- history because he was a, a football player and then he was a professional wrestler for a while. And then he came into acting. Uh, his filmography is pretty long. He was in a lot of movies. Oh, he's and, a great character actor. Yeah, and I mean he's he's in a lot of significant movies in in there too. If you look at it, he was in Stagecoach, which is you know considered to be the first great western ever. Uh, he was in uh, I'm just looking Spartacus. Uh, yeah, um, Ten, yeah, Ten Commandments. Uh, you know what else have we got? I'm just trying to do this quickly. I apologize if I'm passing things over. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Right, uh, uh, Sergeant Rutledge is a real good movie of his. Where right. He plays a black soldier accused of raping a white woman, and that's kind of groundbreaking movie for back in the day when it was made. Sometime back, I think in the fifties. And he was he was still active. I don't remember him in it, uh, but he actually played a part in The Quick and the Dead back in nineteen ninety five. Oh wow, that so one he, I, I might have missed him if he was in that too. Yeah, I, I'm assuming it was a small role, but you know he he stayed active for quite a while. He. Uh, was he? He passed away. Actually, he passed away. He must have passed away right after filming a scene because uh, he died on December thirty first, nineteen ninety four, at eighty years old. So he was he was about eighty when he when he appeared in that movie. Okay, I know the last thing I ever saw him in, he had a small part in the Mario Van Peebles Western Posse, and I don't know if that came out right around that time, but I know it was an early nineties movie. That is his last movie before the quick and the dead that was in 1993 okay and he's listed as storyteller yeah he has a small part in the beginning of the movie kind of like it was almost like he was giving you a little uh what do you call it intro into the movie and other than that i don't know if he appeared in any of the other scenes now our theoretical villain in the movie and I think I'm going to correct myself on that and I'm going to say my antagonist in the movie because he's really not the villain is Jack Palance and I think he was virtually unrecognizable in this movie uh, he Jack Palance is, is an underrated actor I think you know people people always go to his performance in City Slickers because he was just so much fun in that movie but if, if you look back at his career uh he, he was just a great, uh, I'm going to say, opponent to, uh, to to the people he, you know, he, he came up against in these movies. And, uh, I, you know, for me, the, the, the high mark of his career is when he played the, uh, the gunslinger in Shane. Right, right. Yeah, the, the, yeah, he's, he's really good in that. He's, he's good in this. You're like you say, he's got the big bushy mustache. So, and the jet black hair. So, you know, and he's talking with a Spanish accent. So yeah, he is a little bit unrecognizable. I mean, but he is, he's a good party. You know, you think he's the bad guy, but they put the swerve in it, you know, in the middle of the movie where it really isn't, but he's, he plays a great revolutionary yeah. and uh, he's done a couple other movies with Lee Marvin where he's played his buddy and they, uh, he had, he had a good chemistry in this movie with those guys. Yeah, I thought he did. Uh, now, Claudia Cardinale as his love interest slash kidnap victim slash female lead in the movie. 
she's she's good, but I kind of feel not no no poor reflection on her. I kind of feel the role she was given was a little bit stereotypical. If you know, if you you explain her backstory, I think. That's kind of this, you know, I think she performed it pretty much the same way anybody would. I don't think she really stood out as, you know, look, look at this performance. Wow, she really, you know, uh, grabbed me. Uh, I didn't think she was bad, but I just think she kind of served a plot purpose more than anything else. Right. She was the eye candy for the movie. You know, when the guy says his wife has been kidnapped, you know, you don't want to expect, uh, you know, a woman of the same age as Ralph Bellamy. Instead, you have this woman who's like half his age and... She's built, you know, like uh, a brick, whatever, and uh, that's some, you know, she's the eye candy of the movie. She's the femme fatale kind of in a way where she's the woman that tries to, you know, convince these guys, no, don't take me back. But they all say, you know, they don't fall for it until the very end. And right. they decide to take her back because they know really she belongs with Jack Palance that she really doesn't belong with Ralph Bellamy. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, I think as far as the female presence in the movie, the other female in the movie kind of steals it a little bit more than her. That's Maria Gomez as Chiquita. And I think her, her key moment is, her key moment really was dying in this movie. Uh, at, at the end when, you know, she, she's there with, uh, uh, with, with uh, Raza and she just insists that, you know, Burt Lancaster would not shoot her and then Burt Lancaster shoots her. Uh, which is just, you know, it, it just... I, I think it adds to his character, and not in a negative way. Even though he's shooting a woman who thinks that he won't, uh, I just think it—you know—it shows his determination. And the, you know, to me, it, it almost shows that he's—he's he's treating her as an equal. That he—he's oh, yeah. he's not, he's not saying, "Oh, it's a girl, I can't shoot her." You know. Well, they all know it's business, and they have to do what each person knows that they'll do what they have to do, even though there is some kind of camaraderie in that at one point they were all on the same side mm-hmm. it's funny when he goes up to her after he shoots her and and, and kind of consoles her a little bit she try you know she ends up trying to pop him one more time but unfortunately she's all out of bullets but it's funny that you know even though she's taking her last dying breath she still tries to to take him with her yeah and, and she she's a more flamboyant character right right so I she, think that that adds to her. Yeah, you know, she, she's more memorable. When the movie is over, I think she's a more memorable memorable character than uh, Claudia Cardinal, who's you know effectively the female lead in the movie. Right, right. She probably has more lines too. Mostly with Claudia Cardinal, she's just there, kind of you know making different gestures, or you know she's got concern on her face, or she's being pushed around, or that kind of thing, or just there to be seen more or less. I think the the last uh, actor or actress in the movie that you know actor uh, that's worth mentioning is Ralph Bellamy as Joe Grant. Now I I you know I've se- probably seen many many things that Ralph Bellamy is in, but he will forever be uh, is he Randolph or Mortimer? I don't remember. He's one of the Duke brothers right. Uh, right. from Trading Places, and that will always be what I think of him as. He was Randolph. Okay. Uh, He's he's got a, a an extremely long filmography, starting from 1931 and going through to 1990. Yeah, yeah. I, I until when I first saw the Trading Places movie, I had had recognized him, but I couldn't tell you a movie he was in. And then when I saw this, 
I actually said to myself, wow, so here's something he was actually in. I knew he had a long storied history in Hollywood, and then that was kind of like a comeback of his when he did the Trading Places movie. Mm-hmm, exactly, but but I was not again. I wasn't familiar with him either. I you know I, he's I think he's one of those that guy actors. One, right. one of the ones when you, you see him and you're like, oh, I, I recognize him, but you don't know from what. And then if you right. watch if you know if you watch movies, you'll see he was in so many things. And just quickly looking over his filmography, just looking to see what you know the, the names that jump out at me. And again, there's I, I don't even know how many movies there are here, but uh, it's a lot. Uh, I'm just going through. There's a lot of movies that I'm not familiar with, and a lot of them are pre-1940. Uh, so he, he was much less active later in his career, as far as the number of movies. He was in His Gal, Fr- His Girl Friday in 1940. Uh, uh, he was in Ellery Queen movies, apparently. Uh, the Ghost of Frankenstein, uh, which is you know one of the Warner Brothers uh, monster movies. Uh, Rawhide in, the, in a, the TV show, Rosemary's Baby, Missiles of October, played Adlai Stevenson. Uh, wow. Oh God. Uh, Trading Places, War and Remembrance, Coming to America, The Good Mother, and his his final career, his final movie appearance was Pretty Woman, and he passed away in 1991. Living to be 87 years old, so you know again, very story, very long and and uh, you know ext- productive career, but uh, essentially I think got through his career as being that guy, yes. if not for the star turn in Trading Places, and in this movie, he he's the kind of guy in the way he plays his performance, you know he knows more than he's telling you. You don't automatically know that he's got bad intentions. And he doesn't really have bad intentions. It's more about the way he's going about things than anything else. Uh, you know, it, it's, I, I don't think there's a true villain in the movie, but he's as close as you come. Uh, right. you know, his, his, his thing is, you know, he's, uh, it's like he's yeah. a guy who gets what he wants and, you know, he wants Claudia Cardinal. And even though, like you say, he's not, doesn't seem like he's a true villain, but he's almost like a, this a rich guy who's you know Stamp, trying to stamping make sure his feet because he's not getting his way. <laughs> right, right. He'd rather you know he feels insulted that she would rather be with you know a guy like Raza who's a Mexican revolutionary than to be with you know this guy Grant who is uh, like a Texas oil man kind of guy and you know he's like you say a little jealous and that's why he sent these guys out on this mission because he's got to have everything. He's got to have the trophy wife. Yeah, and it's like, well, if if I get her brought back to me sooner or later, she'll fall in love with me, and then we'll, everyone will all be happy. I, I almost feel like that's his thought process. Yeah, I would agree. So you know, and and it's not again not necessarily a total villainous turn, but I guess the villainous aspect of it is that he's willing to do whatever it takes, and the fact that he's you know willing to get Raza killed and Raza's men killed, not for any positive purpose but just so that he could get this woman back who left because she doesn't want to be with him uh you know that's that's really his i guess the two aspects of it that make him a villain is that his 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 willingness to you know his his cavalier attitude so it's other people's lives and two uh you know in this current day and age we we all know no means no 
<laughs> so he's, right, you know, she right. she says no in her actions, and he's like, I don't care. You're coming back anyway. So, uh, you know, that's that's obviously you know not not acceptable, and it's even more unacceptable now than it was in 1966, and even more unacceptable than than that when this is supposed to take place. You know, back then, I don't know that this was quite as heinous of an act, but yeah, it is. <laughs> well, the big thing, and you kind of get the sense that when they were married in the first place, it was more of a either a marriage of convenience or arranged. It was never like these two met and they actually might have had feelings for each other. It almost seems like, you know, it was they were put together for different reasons. And he, you know, the guy with all the money had more feelings for her than what she did. And he just couldn't take no for an answer kind of thing. Yeah, well, he effectively purchased her. Right, right. So, you know, it's, again, <laughs> I think, you know, uh, it, it, I think I think when you look at it, you know, through the current day and age, it, it it was always a bad act. But I think it's even, you know, I think we're more more aware of how bad it is now than it was then. Oh, oh what's funny. And also there's a scene in the uh, movie when they're abducting her in the middle of Raza's compound and all the explosions are going off and they're fighting their way out. And she's struggling. Oh, Burt Lancaster's got to give her a love tap across the chin to kind of subdue her where you would never see that in today's day and age, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. One of the heroes, you know, of all things. And and it's, it's something where in the time this movie took place, that would not have been, you know, an unacceptable act. Uh, right. But, and, it, and it wouldn't necessarily have turned somebody into a villain, but I think, you know, when you look under, at it under current, you know, sensibilities, you got to say, oh, my God, that's horrible. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's just kind of something you have to acclimate yourself to that, you know, it, it was a different time and era and things were done differently and, you know, it, to the extent that you can. Uh, but I, I don't think I don't think it's anything that so stands out that it makes this movie somehow, you know, a real problem to watch. Oh, no, no, I just, like you say, it's funny when you do watch old films that you see things that at one point in time were, like you say, acceptable, not that big of a deal to where you say today. Uh, they can never put that in a movie today because there'd be people that would go to see it and take it the wrong way and be offended. Yeah, and now uh, just to give a little trivia that I'm lifting off of Wikipedia uh, the movie, which was shot in Technicolor, and it is kind of a, a real pretty movie to watch, by the way, uh, was filmed in Death Valley, Valley of Fire, and around Coachella Valley in California. The rail scenes were filmed on Kaiser's Steel Eagle Mountain Railroad. The steam locomotive scene in the movie, oh, the, the steam locomotive scene in the movie currently resides in the Herber Valley Railroad. So that's cool. It still it still exists. I guess people are able to see it. And it's a pretty cool looking, you know. Uh, you know, big, imposing kind of train. Uh, during the filming, the cast and crew stayed in Las Vegas. Actor Woody Strode wrote in his memoirs that he and Marvin got into a lot of pranks. On one occasion, shooting an arrow into Vegas Vic, the famous smiling cowboy neon sign outside the Pioneer Club. So I think that's something that kind of comes through in the movie. And one of the things that makes this an enjoyable movie to watch is the feeling that the actors were having fun doing it. And right. Yeah, I would agree. I, 
I thought the one thing that you, that was in this movie that wasn't in maybe other movies where they put a group of guys together who don't know each other is there was never any hostility between the four. There wasn't one guy who might have played a man who had a problem with Woody Strode being black and the whole time these two are, you know, at each other's throats. They all seem to, you know, get along fine together. And I don't know if that was partly the way they wanted to do the movie or it was just the actors all, you know, being friendly with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've often said it's more fun to watch people perform, whether it's singers, actors, dancers, whatever, any any performer, if it looks like they're having fun performing for you. And oh, that's yeah. kind of the feel in this movie. And, and it's something that I... Uh, I really enjoy about it. Uh, the movie was uh, nominated for three Academy Awards. Uh, writer and director Richard Brooks for Best Director and Best Writing. Uh, and that's an adapted screenplay because it comes from a, 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 a novel, a, Ma- a Mule for the Marquesa by Frank O'Rourke. Uh, and it was also nominated for Cinematographer. Uh and that's what I said. It, it is a pretty movie to watch. Uh, the scenery all looks great, and it's just a real, you know, it, it's technicolor. And, you know, back in the 70s, I think there was something, or 60s and 70s, it's something that they, you know, they really paid attention to when they were making these movies, I think. And I think that was almost uh, there. You know, we, we need to make these large and, you know, vast backgrounds and everything because we don't want you to sit at home and watch it on TV. We want you to come out to the movie theater and watch it. I think they were afraid at that time that they were going to lose the the movie theaters to you know to TV. Uh, and then what does it say? The film won two Motion Picture Magazine Laurel Awards in 1967 for Best Action Drama and Best Action Performance for Lee Marvin. Uh, in Germany, it was one of only four movies to receive a Golden Screen Award. The others were Doctor Zhivago. Second one, I don't know, and I, I'm going to have trouble, trouble pronouncing it. It's Marvelous Angelique. And the third was You Only Live Twice. Wow. <laughs> I didn't realize it was that highly regarded over in Europe. That's yeah. nice to hear. Par- apparently it was, and that's that's kind of cool. And it's, you know, it, it's just, you know, I, I don't want to overstate it and say, oh, this, you know, this is something that's mind-blowing that's going to stay with you or anything, because I don't think it's that but it's just an enjoyable movie to sit down and watch. And I think if you do, if, if that's what you're looking for, especially if you like the old style Westerns, I think it fits that bill very well. And if you haven't seen it and you do like old style Westerns, I would say seek this out and, and give it a shot. Cause I think it's, it's fairly entertaining. I, I think that's, that's the biggest praise I can give it is it's fairly entertaining, uh, which I think leads us to our big question that we have to ask every time out is it yours? And let me give you the Jaws scale for uh, anybody listening who is not familiar with it. The Jaws scale is, if it's Jaws, it's a great movie, virtually flawless, uh, an all-time classic. Jaws 2, really solid, but not quite up to that classic level, uh, worthy of, you know, reviewing and, uh, you know, still a, you know, real, real good movie. Jaws 3, entertaining, but not groundbreaking, and Jaws 4 is a bad movie. Richard, where do you place The Professionals? Well, Paul, I would place it uh, somewhere between a Jaws 2 and a Jaws 2.5. So I'm in that kind of range. I, I I think it's, for me, a solid movie, and I've rewatched it 
on a, more than one occasion, and I don't know. It's it's tough. It is. It, it's either worthy of two and three, but I think it falls in between Jaws two and Jaws three. So that's why I say two and a half. Yeah, I'm I'm in a similar area. I'm going to say a high Jaws three. Uh, it's an entertaining movie. I really don't. I don't really have any nitpicks with it where I could say any aspect of it is bad. Uh, the performances are, are entertaining. The story is entertaining. Uh, its biggest flaw is ultimately, you know, you move on and you say, yeah, that was good, and you don't really give it a lot more thought than that. Uh, but but I don't I don't but I don't have any real significant things I can point to as on the negative end either. Uh, and if I was flipping through the channels, I don't know that I would seek it out to watch it over and over again. But if I was flipping through the channels and I get to TMC or AMC or whatever channel might be showing it, I probably stop and I watch. So yeah, I would agree. It's not like one of my more favorite Lee Marvin movies. There are a few other ones that I would probably pick ahead of this. But it's it's a good movie. When I watch it, it's definitely. You know, it keeps my interest, and I'm not like halfway through turning it off because I'm bored. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there was never a point in this that I was bored at all. Uh, so that's it for the professionals. Before we sign off, and I wish my dog would stop barking. Uh, before we sign off, I just have a, a rare piece of email that I want to touch on, uh, and it's from uh, my friend Tim Elliott, and it says, uh, "Greeting, Chief Spitaro and Maya Pascarella. I just finished your episode on Goldfinger." But since 49 led me to episode 21, I felt I should give it credit. I'm a huge Bond fan, and I really enjoyed your coverage of both films. Unlike Dave, I like the non-Eon-produced Bond film. I find it very watchable thanks to the presence of Connery, and it makes a great background movie while you're working. It doesn't have all the tropes or feel of the, so well-established in the proper series, but all in all, I give it Jaws 3, uh, which is, I think, where I landed on it as well. Goldfinger is a solid is a solid Jaws. My first Bond film was also Diamonds Are Forever, seen with the family at our local drive-in. Cheers, Tim Elliott, one half of Third Degree Burn, shameless podcast plug. P.S. I'm watching The Last Shark as I type this email, and for that, Tim, I apologize to you. <laughs> that is truly a Jaws four movie, and I I, I definitely. Uh, I reviewed that one with J uh, Jason Giaconetti and uh, Gene Hendricks, and uh, I think we all firmly fell in the Jaws 4 range on it. But but we did have a lot of fun reviewing it and making fun of it. So hopefully, as you're watching it, you're getting that pleasure out of it. Uh, but thanks again for writing in. Anybody who does wish to comment on anything that we're doing here or have any questions uh, or movies they want to suggest to be covered, uh, the email is jawspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, so thanks again, Richard, for coming on. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time to do this three times. Oh, no problem, Paul. I just, I'm um, glad you were able to, to, to set up a time and fit me in and hopefully this one will go up. Yeah, this, this one, uh, you know, as long as it, my, my computer says it's recording, so hopefully it does and, and, and it'll be up in, you know, I don't know, in a couple of, maybe a month or two, but, uh. And then in the meanwhile, you and I will find something else to cover, and we'll watch some sports, and I'm sure we'll have some comments back and forth in the meanwhile. So thank you, everybody, for listening in, and uh, see you next time. But that will change nothing. She is my woman, before, now, always. Nothing is for always, except death. Ask Fierro, ask Francisco, ask those in the cemetery of nameless men. They died for what they believed. The revolution? 
When the shooting stops and the dead are buried and the politicians take over, it all adds up to one thing, a lost cause. So, you want perfection or nothing? Oh, you're too romantic, compadre. La Revolución is like a great love affair. In the beginning, she is a goddess, a holy cause. But every love affair has a terrible enemy. Time. We see her as she is. La Revolución is not a goddess, but a whore. She was never pure, never saintly, never perfect. So we run away, find another lover, another cause. Quick, sordid affairs. Lust, but no love. Passion, but no compassion. Without love, without a cause, we are nothing. We stay because we believe. We live because we are disillusioned. We come back because we are lost. We die because we are committed.